0: Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. There's nothing we like better at the Bureau of Lost Culture than a story of lost culture and rare audio. Mix it in with a bit of jazz. Some stories about Soho and the East End of London. And you've got the perfect episode for us. And today, it's courtesy of my guest, Alan Dean. He's returning to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Last time he was here to talk about self-made record, the records that were made in kiosks and other places by members of the public to record their own voices and songs in the 1930s and the 40s. Alan is an award-winning broadcaster, producer for the BBC, oral historian, he's a researcher in Jewish cultural history, and... He's a bit of an expert in london too all these things mixed up in the recent album that he released music is the most beautiful language in the world yiddish jazz in london's east end in the 1920s to 1950s we're going to hear music from that and we're going to hear stories about that culture and about gangsters in soho poverty and glamour in pre-war london and all sorts of other stuff so i'm very pleased to welcome him back hello
1: alan Hello, and thank you for having
0: me. Well, having you back, actually. So, Alan, <laughs> uh, uh, last time you were here, we were talking about one of your uh, obsessions, one of my obsessions too, recently, the self-made record. Indeed. Uh, the voice record. Um, now, Alan, you are, of course, an oral historian, radio broadcaster, but that's just the sort of surface of it. Why don't you tell us? Why don't we start off by you telling us who is Alan Dean? Alan Dean.
1: Well that is um an intriguing question because I would like to know myself but oral history is something that's been my 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 working life and something I've been passionate about for many many years. I I also call myself a social historian because I'm fascinated in lots of different elements of social culture um and social history. Just
0: to back up the truck a little bit. I knew you'd be too modest actually to mention all this stuff because you are also you've made many many documentaries. BBC. Yeah. Got some major radio awards. The pre, is it pre-Italia? Pre-Europe, Sony Radio Awards, the US Third Coast. You're a member of the Oral History Society. All that sort of stuff. But the things, I mean, we're going to cycle back to the, this most recent project, but also you've, you've made a lot of London work as well, haven't you? You've made a lot, a lot of work around where you live. You've got your book about Golders Greens coming out. You've made programmes about King's Cross, Caledonian Road, etc. And I think for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, an oral historian is somebody who collects those histories, as you mentioned there, and it's, even with your current, you know, Radio 4 programme, Don't Log Off, you know, which is where you're collecting, you're collecting stories from around the world, aren't you? Mm. So that, I mean, in a way, you are a kind of story catcher, aren't you? you? You collect and catch other people's stories.
1: Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. I suppose, you know, I like to think that I'm a, a, a conduit, for people to tell their stories. You know, I'm a prompter. Um obviously I was very inspired by the work of people like Studs Turkle, the great American historian, oral historian. Um I you know, I, I, I totally admire what he did, but I don't see myself as a studs because Studs was a personality in his own right. He was a character.
0: Right, and you I think, always been a bit invisible. Yeah, right? I mean,
1: I, because I don't really feel it's about me. Right. It's how, so, about how do you
0: me. feel when I'm now I'm got, I've got <laughs> you on the other side of the microphone? As and you I'm can giving, you a, giving you a light grilling.
1: Yeah, as, <laughs> as you can hear, Stephen, you know, I do feel less comfortable than when I'm prompting other people. Mm. I, I'm very happy to talk about things I do, and I'm very touched that people are interested, and, you know, I really appreciate it. But I do think that, you know, my work is very much about trying to find a way to get, as you say, to get people to tell their stories. And we Don't Log Off, it is very international, and obviously we're using the Linga Franca of the world, which is English, so people around the world, whether in South America or Southeast Asia, are talking to me in almost perfect English. It's incredible. It is amazing, actually, the,
0: the incredible English that people have got. And, you know, the interesting thing about Don't Log Off... I mean, I suppose, in a way, the interesting thing about radio for me at the moment, you know, including this program, is is that radio, despite the kind of... the growth of other media, it's still the most powerful one for telling stories, isn't it? You know, I mean, in your program, I listen to your program, and it's like you're there sometimes with the, with the people, aren't you? You're actually in their world, you know, and that's the magic of radio. And that, I think, in a way, the 20th century, you know, when radio sort of emerged, that was what was magic about it, wasn't it? That connecting, connecting stories. Across the continents, across the world, across time,
1: I I completely agree with you, and I think I think what a lot of it is down to the fact that you know the potency of the voice and the voice as being some kind of window or or, or a portal to the soul, mm. and we feel that more and more as we listen, particularly in the kind of research you've been doing in 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 the former Soviet Union, most of history falls through the cracks of history. So basically. What happens is is that most of the stuff that we hear and read about, unfortunately, still to this day, is the is the stuff that is is, is that is formally printed in hmm. the newspapers.
0: Well, the story that we're going to be talking about today, which is you know centres around this wonderful album of Yiddish London music that you've put out. I mean that combines a lot of your interests doesn't it but i mean how did you come to it what's what's your sort of background that brought you to that coming
1: from a background that i would call sort of sort of jewish background but that kind of m- that movement of the jewish community out of the east london through into the suburbs so i grew up in hendon in northwest london and lived this sort of double life a life where a lot of the family and the older members of the family would be some of them would be very nostalgic about the world of East London particularly and the memories of growing up there in the interwar years and those kind of lives of a very active bustling community and I've always been intrigued by those stories particularly in East London but also here where we're speaking now in Soho in the West End because obviously there was a, a very deep-seated Jewish culture in the West End as well, which goes back to the 1700s. And my background was through um, working in a museum which was called the Museum of the Jewish East End. And the Museum of the Jewish East End was a fledgling museum, it was right in the early days of sort of community social history. And our, pro- our project was to do oral histories and document and collect people's memories and and artefacts relating to life in London, and particularly the East End of London. And um, one of the projects that I've been doing the last couple of years, which is trying to source the kind of stories of Jewish music in England, but not the kind of high Jewish music, that is the cantoral music or the sort of high synagogue music Mm. of choirs, I was more interested in that popular music, the dance music, the bands that performed week in, week out and um, played the weddings, played the big functions and the charity events, but also musicians that would got, would start from humble origins mm. in the East End of London and become household names, you know, the likes of Ambrose and Lou Stone and Joe Loss um, and Harry Roy, these musicians that... Brought so much to British culture, mm. but also was so locked in a world of, of 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 their childhoods, growing up in East London, and also that kind of emergence of a idiom which we now call jazz or big bands. But going back to what you're saying about um, the music itself, you know the kind of link between, you know the 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 um, the East End and particularly the kind of the 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 work I've been doing, trying to kind of rediscover. A lot of the music that did fall through the cracks of history, particularly um, particularly records that were produced um, um, by dance bands, dance bands who were desperately trying to to move up the ladder, and didn't want to record the kind of music that their grandparents would be listening to, or the kind of music that would play at, at Jewish functions. But sometimes they did, and those recordings are incredibly scarce. And you know, so I've been managing to sort of trace those records right.
0: and the, the LP that you brought out. Uh, last year, Alan, um, music is the most beautiful language in the world. So, some of the actual artists, as they were, Lou Stone, Ambrose—they're uh, quite famous, aren't they? But actually, the tracks themselves are quite rare. And you know, that's w- exactly why, it. Don't, why don't we hear Am- the Ambrose track, which is called "A Selection of Hebrew Dances." And you can tell us a little bit about it. <laughs> So that was 1933, uh, Alan, quite early then actually, was not it, and um, still sounding, as you said, it's difficult to kind of keep still, your foot's immediately tapping, you know, you're sort of moving around to it, it's pretty groovy, isn't it? It
1: is, and you can get, you know, it's a sense of, it's fusion, isn't it? It's it's Hebrew music with dance music. Ambrose put out a record um, of the selection of Hebrew dances, parts one and parts two. Uh, Part one is on the music is the most beautiful language in the world. By the way, that was a slogan. Of a record shop in Brick Lane in the 1920s. It was a time when people were starting to have disposable income and right. buy gramophone players. It was also the time when people were starting to get rid of their old pianos in the front room Course. and put up the gramophone player. The gramophone, the gramophone player became such a phenomenon, and there was a record shop called Levy's in Whitechapel High Road. And the great thing about Levy's is not only did it sell um, the, the popular music of the day, like music artists and so forth but they got these red hot jazz imports from America and a lot of the great musicians the likes of the Ambroses and the Loose Stones and the young Joe Losses would buy their records there because they wanted to hear this kind of this, hmm. this, this new jazz idiom that was coming out the Foxtrots, the Charlestons, these incredible tunes which of course weren't being played on the radio in
0: well, that's right. Of course, I mean the BBC was notoriously shy about playing uh, anything like
1: that, wasn't it? So the, the, the music wasn't played. You know that. You know, the BBC did catch up eventually, and all <laughs> these musicians I've just mentioned became household names through the BBC, as the BBC did pick up on that music in the 1930s. But certainly in the first 10 years of its life, from the early 20s through to the early 30s, it really they didn't really touch it at all. Um, you know, they really they, they kind of shied away from popular culture. The it was a little bit too rough and ready. Mm. It was also a little bit too new. You know, they didn't really understand it. Yeah, you
0: see, the thing, the interesting thing for me in this, in terms of the... I mean, this this programme, the Bureau of Vos Culture, is... You know, a large part of it is about counterculture. And, of course, mm. when, we, when, we, when we think about counterculture, we normally think about 1950s the beats, the hippies, mm-hmm. maybe the 70s and then the, maybe the 80s and the 90s, the free festival scene and raves and stuff. But, of mm. course, the stuff that you are talking about, in fact, is countercultural, wasn't it? It was effectively Jewish counterculture mm. from... That time, I mean, it, wasn't being, it wasn't being played by the big cultural institution, which is the BBC, and right. it was a kind of underground thing.
1: It, I think it most probably was, you're right, and certainly listening to this Ambrose track, um, what you're hearing is, is a mix of the kind of prevalent dance music of the day with a sort of Jewish folk idiom thrown into it. And it's the sort of music you would only hear if you did walk into a wedding in London. In the 1920s and 30s. You would not have heard it anywhere else. So the fact that this was recorded at all and was made available, but of course, like a lot of these recordings, they disappeared because Amber, it was one of Hundreds of records that Ambrose produced. Ambrose, I, I don't actually know. I, you know the, the discography, uh, Ambrose's discography is telephone broadcast. Yeah, it's
0: massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: you know they they were putting out so many records that was so popular, and also music was really disposable. You know, it came out and then there was another track and another track and another track. It didn't stand still.
0: <laughs> it's gone back to being like that through Spotify, I think, etc. But uh, what was it like? What, what did it feel like actually digging
1: up these? Rare gems. Just that kind of thrill of tr- of finding them as well, because they were they had slipped out of consciousness, mm. and so the only way to find them and there wasn't an obvious discography. So it really was a matter of just hunting wild, you know, just really you know, digging through the British Library, digging through discs that had been donated to the Jewish Museum, and also um, some discs that were found in charity shops mm. in places like Golders Green, and. Mm-hmm. Um, where that generation of people had passed on, but left these discs. Amazing and stuff. And, and you know, and 78s in and charity shops don't last long. Not so much in the sense that people are going to buy them, but the fact they get broken. You sure, know, sure, I mean,
0: they don't, they don't survive. I'm going to go straight on to this next track because people might recognise this yeah.
1: tune. Not this version of it, but no. certainly
0: the actual song. itself.
2: But to the positive in Ill- the negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-between, for spread joy up to the maximum, bring bloom down to the minimum, Happy faith, or pandemonium, liable to walk up on the scene, to illustrate my last remark, Jonah in the way, in the arc. what did they do? Just when everything looks so dark, man, they said we better accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mister In Between, no.
1: In between. You've got Ambrose working with the singer Rita Marlowe. Rita was one of Ambrose's um, um, female singers. There was always a sort of most big bands had the feat, the woman singer who would come on for certain numbers, and Rita was interesting because not well known today. Rita was an East End girl um, um, from Stepney. Her, fa- her father was a choir master at a local synagogue in, um, in Stepney. Hmm. And she like, uh, the, you know, she was that generation who broke away from a very sort of formal upbringing to sort of mix with the Jazz boys and go and go into that world of, of, of the dance band and perform. And she performed with Ambrose and a number of the big bands until after the war, where she pretty much dedicated the rest of her singing life to just singing in Yiddish. And why I felt it was important to kind of listen to Ambrose and Rita Marlowe together on this track is that it's so distant, in a way, from that Jewish world that they inhabited in Mm. the East End, and so different from Hebrew dance selection of Hebrew dances and some of the tracks that Rita was going to be singing later when she brought out a lot of records, mostly on the Oriole label, um, um, specifically Yiddish songs. And I thought what I find intriguing is here we have a very American tune, yeah, totally, and an American vibe on that tune as well, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's and, and in a way, it's the vibe of what was happening at the time. You can imagine this when this came out in 1944 45. All those American soldiers here, based in in West in the West End, going out, going to the clubs, bands like Ambrose and many other dance bands performing, and you could just ima- imagine the sort of the halls filled with sort of cigarette fumes mm. and 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 the American servicemen, yeah, totally, of, you know, hanging out. Checking out the the women and um, and particularly to the music. in this area, you imagine, totally. don't you? I mean,
0: it, it's totally. it's uh, you know, and around the corner, you know, clubs clubs like the Flamingo. You mentioned earlier about the kind of Jewish connections in Soho, uh, and so the record store that you mentioned, Levi's, was in the East End. A lot of these musicians were East End Jewish musicians. But what was going on here then? I mean, what was you mentioned that there's a strong uh, Jewish community here?
1: There was a strong community here that had started in the 1700s, and um, the community had grown substantially uh, un- uh, until the big wave really kind of transformed, particularly areas like Berwick Street, which became predominantly a Jewish market. So by the 1930s, after the big wave of the Jewish immigration in the late 19th century, You're looking at about 75% of the market as Jewish stallholders. Um, Lots of the shops um, were clothing related. So, the Jewish community, by the time they'd arrived in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries, not only in East London but also in the West End, had focused predominantly on certain trades. And one of the trades that was really kind of took up most people's kind of working life. Was the tailoring trade because it was actually quite an easy job to get into? Um, you know, often they had Jewish employers. Um, often um, you didn't actually for for the you didn't have to speak English. A lot of jobs weren't available. There was quite a lot of there was a kind of bar on a, a number of jobs. So in certain areas, you just if you were Jewish, you wouldn't be able to get a job. I think as far as the music was concerned and I think that all the generations from that earlier generation like Ambrose and Lou Stone to people like Ronnie Scott and, and, and Cy Laurie, the great sort of Jewish Jewish born jazzers of the, of, of, of the 1950s and onwards, a lot of that generation were East End boys moving to the West End. Everything was up West. If you if Your ambition was to go West. And if you were a young musician, you would head off to places like Archer Street, just around the corner from where we're speaking, and near the theatres, the back of the theatres, where the musicians would just stand around, hmm. talking about music, talking about the fav- uh, you know, their, their their favorite musicians, talking about different styles of drum <laughs> of drum playing or or, 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 or uh, trumpet playing, saxophone playing, whatever, and it would be it would just be hanging out, talking about music, but also trying to find a gig. Trying to hmm. find a band, getting a band together, and so it was very much, you know. So you had the Tim Pan Alley scene, Denmark Street. You had Archer Street, and you had a, a kind of sense of a, a sense, and also the other thing, which is very important. Um, you had Piccadilly. Nowadays, it's funny about London. You know, if you think about London over the, over the last fifty years, even, you know, parts of London become very fashionable and then die out. So hmm. you had like someone like Kings Road. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, everyone used to talk about King's Road. Who cares about King's Road now? Yeah, for sure. Um, It's been rinsed by sort of Evian, hasn't it? And it's kind of, it's of no interest, really. No interest. And it's the same with Mayfair. Spending money. Mayfair Piccadilly. Mm. Piccadilly, back in the 20s and 30s, Mm. had so many hotels, so many restaurants, all had dance bands performing.
0: So So for those, for these East End kids, a lot of them from poor backgrounds, their ambition was to get up west. They might learn their trade, whether it be rag trade or as a musician in the east, playing with their mates, first of all, and then sort of working their way up. But the big ambition was to get into, you know, to be, say, playing with Ambrose in one of the big hotels or one of the big dance halls of west.
1: Without doubt. And significantly, um, not only could you apply your trade and you could be, be working, you could work every night, also you'd be earning a lot of money. Right. the bands that performed in these big hotels to the huge crowds that would queue up on a Sunday to dance to the live music these bands were very handsomely paid and you know if, if you had um, you know, if you if you as a band were had a regular stint at these hotels and restaurants you would really be doing very well and also as well as traveling <laughs> so to because if you were known as be playing in these you know, back hotels in Mayfair, you would also be travelling to the big hotels up and down the country and abroad. So it could be quite a glamorous lifestyle. It, it was a very glamorous lifestyle. It was also a lifestyle that was, was in a way a, a conflict for a lot of the musicians. Because it was a very different world to their childhoods hmm. and different world to their parents. And so they were, it, was a, it, was, it was a kind of, a, it was a form of anglicization in a sense. Mm. They were kind of adopting another lifestyle, um, and, but at the same time, and particularly why I'm so intrigued about this music, is this music is their roots and they, you know, however much you live your life, you can't escape those roots and you can't deny that those roots had a very significant role to play. In the kind of musician you were. So someone like Ambrose, he started to play the violin because his dad and and heard a man playing the violin outside his house in the commercial road and pulled the guy in and said, Can you teach my son how to play the violin? And you know, and and, and just to be able to kind of to to, to to at such a young age to be able to have those skills about to 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 play, but also you know. The, the, the fact is is that they were playing in some like Ambro, Ambrose, he, he was playing in silent cinemas, you know, playing the violin in, in, in to silent films, um, to accompany the films. He was playing in small clubs, he was mm-hmm. building his he was building his skills, and they were all doing that. Uh, Max Bacon, the drummer, by the 1930s became most probably one of the most well-known drummers in Britain, wrote the first book on um, drum playing um, for premier drums. Um, on, on jazz drumming, so very important people. Um, but what 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 I find what I do find so fascinating is that you know someone like Louis Steinberg of Bethnal Green becomes Lou, Lou Stone. Stone. Right. So that's
0: Lou Stone here. So I want to play this track because Lou Stone, of course, he he's another person who became very famous Absolutely. in that world, and but I'd never heard of this track before, so let's have a quick listen to this, it's Abrivella der Mama.
2: Abrivela der Mama, I don't need the damen, You should skin, Shake it in
0: You said that's a letter to Mama, um, Lewston. You mentioned before then, uh, Alan. So he Anglicised his name. Right? He did. Um, well, was that necessary? Was that part of you know? You're saying about you know it's how difficult it was for them to get on in the world, maybe because they were Jewish. So they, the, the sort of certain bars, certain you know the bar was higher or certain doors were closed. Was that a necessary part of it that you had to play the game by by sounding like you were? I th- British I th- or even American, I think. Lou Stone sounds a bit American, doesn't
1: he? It? it does. And I think that if you look at most people in show business, the names that they adopted as their showbiz name was not their real name. So that across the board, not only specifically Jewish people, but certainly a lot of Jewish people just decided to remove the Jewishness from their name so hence Louis Steinberg comes Lou Stone, Harry Lipman becomes Harry Roy um, and sort of it, it, it's a sense of it, it is a sense of that kind of Americanization, Anglicization but it's also a sense of um, in a way it's being, it's, it's, it's wiping the slate clean. It's saying, this is new, I'm fresh. It's not about yesterday. It's not about the past. It's about who I'm going to make myself in the future. And I think that what was happening amongst particularly a lot of the Jewish musicians at that time, they were at a crest of a wave. They were at a point where they were making their own history. They were at a point where music was so fresh and so original that they were, they, they were pathfinders. Mm. And I, and I think that in a way to be like that, you wanted to sort of remove the shackles of history, remove the shackles of the past, and 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 to, so so in a way that's why I find this music so interesting because in some senses they still got it, mm. it's still there, mm. but nevertheless they want to be they want to be Harry Roy or <laughs> Lou Stone, and as you say, a lot of people didn't know they were Jewish. Um, and, and, and I think that most probably that did help. It was also there was a pre- prevalent um, anti-Semitism throughout this period. Mm. Obviously, a lot of the music we're talking about from the 1930s coincides with the rise of the British Union, the fascists and so forth, and obviously fascism throughout Europe. So we are talking about a backdrop of anti-Semitism here and obviously a backdrop of anti-Semitism which brought them to this country in the first place. You know, parents flee. Lots, Eastern of, Europe.
0: lots of refugees, right? Exactly. Before, before the war as well as after the war. Exactly. Right? So Ambrose, just...
1: Ambrose was born in Poland. Um, so, mm. he, you know, he actually was not even born here. Um, mm. He came over as a child from mm. Poland.
0: I think also to bring him with them as well, of course, the, the it's a very important part of jazz, full stop, is yeah. that kind of Yiddish influence as well, isn't it? Totally. I mean, you've got those, you've got Gypsy music, you've got black black blues, you've got you know honky tonk and ragtime, and, and of course Yiddish music, all blending together to became to it, me what became swing,
1: right? It, it, it's totally true, and I, and and I think the music that you know it, it you know people use as this catchall term as of as klezmer um, is, is is as you say is a form of Gypsy music, is a music of the wanderer, mm. and Jews um, have been wanderers um, for centuries; they've moved from place to place. And the culture has moved with them and the music has moved with them and it's adapted to different places where they've been. So whether they had a stop off in Warsaw, whether they had a stop off in Russia, they would ad- adopt some of the culture from where, they, where mm. they were and then they would take it with them again. And so they were always sort of collecting. They were sort of collectors in a way um, of, of all the different kinds of music that they were kind of embracing on their journey. And I think that what happens here in the 1930s is you get this 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 ultimate fusion between the 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 music of the time, which is obviously predominantly dance band music, um, and of course um, in the kind of tracks that I'm sort of being mm. intrigued about, it, the fact that it has it, it doesn't go away. And this is that's very true in this next one. This is Max Bacon. You mentioned him earlier, so he yeah.
0: was a drummer, right? Okay, so let's have a listen to this. There's a certain
3: fellow, what everybody knows he is such a funny fellow when he went to school he must have specialized to become a clever seller if you ever happen to be near why it's ten to one he'll whisper in you here oh if you want a suit that's nifty, don't pay sixty bob or fifty I can get it for you wholesale If you're thinking about marriage, don't you buy a baby's carriage I can get it for you wholesale I can get you anything you want if you'll agree And I'll guarantee that you'll almost buy it free Say, if you need an operation, Dr. Brad is my relation. I can get it for you wholesale. Yes, anything you want from cornflakes to corsets, I can get it for you at tradesmen's prices. Why, there's a friend of mine who goes into holy padlock not so long ago lately. So when I hear he's getting married, I get for him a specially cheap ring, in a second-hand license. And I fixes up the furniture for the house, all brand-new antiques. Then I don't see him for maybe a year. And he comes back and he says, Max, he says, my wife is suspecting a blessed event. Well, I'll be blessed, I says. Good luck to you. Now you leave it to me. I can get for you everything wholesale. So I features up with him the
0: eternity hall. Uh, genius. So, um, <laughs> um, and and I think Alan, um, that was that wasn't on the record, was it? That's, uh, no, well, that's I thought a, I thought i saving that up. I you? would
1: say that one, especially for you, Stephen, because because it's quite nice to play tracks that um, um, aren't available, um, a, a, a that accessible. Um, and the, the one on the record is Beigles, which is most probably one of the great tunes about food um, of all time and particularly um you know classic jewish east end food uh, bagels not bagels um and Ma- Ma- max bacon's um had a series of records out he was a drummer with ambrose by day but but but, but also what he would do is put out his own tracks Usually adopting what he called Yinglish, which is a sort of Middle European, so he sounds like he comes from Eastern Europe, and he obviously is. Jewish he was hamming it up there a bit, and wasn't he? he obviously a ham. He became an actor, right. and um, he pretty much gave up music by mm. the 1950s and 60s and went into um, performing. And you know, you'd see, you know, every, you, you see old episodes of things like you know Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and stuff. He mm. appears in those. You know, he appears in quite a lot. Old classic British films. I mean, the amazing uh, thing about that for me as well is is
0: that I know this is this is leaping forward quite yeah. a bit. But you can hear in a song like that, you can hear. What Lionel Bart was doing later, can't you? Well, that's a really good point. I mean, of point. course, Lionel Bart, East End Jewish boy, wasn't he? But, totally. And, and who couldn't play an instrument, but would sing all his songs to somebody who could write music. Then, and they would write them down for him. But he had the, that kind of intonation and the melodies and the lyric, actually, in a funny way. The way of the way of that skittery way of actually delivering it is.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's, it's actually a, it's a really good point because I think that what happens is that Bart is you know, the generation after Max Bacon. But certainly both Bart and Bacon were influenced by Music Hall, and Music Hall was something that was was, was on your doorstep when you were growing up in East London. Or, and, so there were
0: many, many, many Music Halls, right?
1: All over the place. And, of course, that kind of patter, the kind of using sort of street language, Cockney, um, using this sort of slang and of course imitating the way people talk in the street. And of course a lot of the generation of of, of, of the, the kind of voices that Max Bacon puts on are the sounds of how your uncle sounded. You know, right. when I go when I went when I was a youngster and going to right. you know, going to functions. So
0: do you think that record was made for the Jewish community in a way? I mean what Yeah, what, it's, it, a it's a speciality record. Right. It was
1: predominantly made for the Jewish community. Obviously a wider community if you get the gags because mm. a lot of those Jewish gags were being performed in musical. There was definitely there was a f- there was from the late nineteenth century there was a kind of Jewish comedians. They who would do stand up comedians. It's totally on PC today and be very uncomfortable watching it. It's I call it sort of Shylocks and Slapstick. So they would dress a little bit like a Shylock and do Slapstick and it's a sort of it's it's sort of it's mocking <laughs> It, it's, it's kind of mocking the sort of Jewish Eastern European kind of look and that sort of ghetto and, and um, character, character, but at the same time, kind of playfully kind of acknowledging the fact that Jews are more likely to be businessmen be working in the markets. Here, Max Bacon says, I can get it for you wholesale, all say, all right?" which is a classic line. You know? So the
0: interesting thing of that, of course, is that it is a, it is sort of okay if you're Jewish making those jokes in a way that it's okay to make say certain things about black people if you're black, but it's certainly not okay to say them if you're white, right? So it was a kind of in-joke for the community and they sort of saw the irony of it at the same time, right?
1: They, they definitely got it and I think that they would enjoy just listening to stuff that is about the world they inhabited right. so they can right. connect with it and identify with it. A younger generation listening to that kind of stuff would be most probably a little bit more uncomfortable because they feel it object objectifies them and it's stereotypes Mm -hmm. and so forth and so forth and obviously that's a complicated one but certainly Max Bacon came from that and you know as you say with Lionel Bart he drew on a lot of that imagery and and the sounds that he heard on the street and the sounds that you would have listened to um from the kind of the raw the racket coming out of pubs Mm. and sing songs and Mm um you know all of that stuff he was picking up on uh, as he was songwriting and um obviously as you say you know um he had he had a, a very very kind of he had a very um powerful ear an, ear an ear which was able to kind of regurgitate this kind mm. of stuff into very kind of palatable pop songs and, and, and theatrical songs. Yeah and, totally. Yeah, this, total next, genius. This,
0: this next song is it's a bit yeah. wider isn't it? The, the sort of appeal, the subject matter is a bit wider. I think most of us can rec- recognise this. It's London on a rainy night.
2: It rained one night in London and I never shall forget for incidentally that's the night we met And when it rains in London, you can bet it really rains, for all I know it may be raining Yeah. She was a wee little maid in distress, with not a cab or omnibus in view. So I played the part of the gent, and I said, my umbrella's made for two. Well, she took my arm so gently, and I walked her to her door. I kissed her and she sort of held me tight. So we're going to be married, and I'm more than thankful for London on a rainy night.
1: But there's, there's something very um, evocative about these tunes, and, and the reason why I thought it would be quite nice to listen to this is that you know here we have harry roy from the same sort of background and coming from the backgrounds that we're talking about with a lot of these musicians and it really is the kind of the focus of his path was to perform this kind of jazz music um, and and he became very accomplished player you know and, and, and incredibly well known you know you know you, you know little kids would have a harry roy cigarette card that the pair you know the the dad would smoke the fags and, um, you know, kind of give them the cards. And, you know, it was it was very much a sense of Harry Roy was a sort of a well-known figure. But obviously, you know, Harry Roy was was was, was Harry Lipman of Shoreditch. Right. Um, and of course, like a lot of these a lot of these musicians um, w- aspired to the kind of the kind of music that we were were listening to didn't record any what I would call sort of Yiddish jazz. Um, There's nothing that I know of. He would have played it certainly uh, when he would have played functions and so forth. Um, A lot of these musicians would play charity functions. um, Right, so he would have grown up playing that stuff as it were. Definitely. And then
0: moved into into this more kind of like uh, swish sort
1: of sound yeah and, and and would would most probably have certainly never recorded the kind of tracks we listened to earlier the kind of Ambrose or, 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 or even loose stones a uh, uh, letter to my mother or um the mama um, wouldn't have recorded those kind of tracks but definitely a, a very integral part of the British dance band scene and someone who was phenomenally respected and played well into the sort of 1950s. And the important thing about the, the dance bands is that you did dance to them. Mm. It's not like when I was going to gigs in the 70s and 80s, where you just stand and watch the band, or, you know, you might pogo or whatever. Mm. But there wasn't a sense of actually dancing with a partner. You were you there a, to dance, exactly, weren't you? They were dance exactly. bands, that was it. You they didn't stand were, and watch, you danced. Right? And people learn how to dance you know at, mm. at 17 most people want to learn how to drive a car you know at, at 17 you went straight to your dance band teacher you know and there was a dance band teacher at the end of your road So, all oh,
0: right i didn't know that so actually everybody actually was given some lessons oh yes it, in the way oh, that you yeah. give a driving lesson absolutely
1: absolutely yeah, absolutely. Right. yeah the, 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 the 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 ear of the dance band instructor hmm was, um, you know, you go through the old telephone directories and it's amazing to see how many people taught dance because it was, that was, you, you needed to. That mm. was how you
0: graduated exactly. in some way from being a kind of uh, youth to being a kind of young woman or a young man. Um, Alan, let's have a listen to this one. This is Wilhelmina and it's Johnny Franks and his kosher ragtime. Wilhelmina, she's
3: the sweetest little girl in Copenhagen, in, in Copenhagen. Copenhagen. Wilhelmine, she drives all the fellas my sugar in Copenhagen. In
2: Copenhagen.
3: And the roses from her cheek, And the chutzpah <laughs> when she speaks. And the way her kisses taste. Kinda hamish like my Bubba's Danish pastry. Wilhelmine. Does the first shop go along with all of your nudden in, in Køypenhagen? Wilhelmine, if your father will make the wedding, I'll buy a toboggan in Copenhagen for the
0: other girls. You're slipping into cabaret there, right? It's wonderful.
1: It's definitely comedy definitely playful um you know almost sort of taking the mickey out of a sort of an american standard mm. a, a song from a movie 1940s 1947 johnny franks and who his was co-chair. johnny franks johnny franks was a butcher's boy you know his, his family ran butcher shops in in Stanford hill in east london and um, violinist and by the time after the war, he, he, he learnt his trade as a youngster in the ENSA, you know, kind of playing various different gigs to the forces. And so by the time the war ends, he's, he's semi-professional already. And he was a West End figure as well. He would be hovering around Archer Street and so forth, looking for gigs, finding bands, forming different kinds of bands. and. Franks puts out a whole load of records on a speciality label called Planet, which was based in Stanford Hill, and they put out Jewish tracks. So it was specifically for the Jewish audience. As you say, a bit of cabaret, a lot of comedy, lots of playful, lots of Yiddish words. Again, very influenced by America um, and people like Icky Katz, the American comedian, And they were mostly kind of um, parodies of famous songs of the day really stretching um, his different talents. He was a violinist, but he was also a jazz musician. And throughout his career, he performed um, in so many different bands. And he was also well known on what they called the Yiddish Borscht Belt, where people would go on their holidays, Jewish people would go. Um, um, And here in England, it was predominantly in Brighton and Bournemouth. So there would be hotels where Jewish families would go, and there would be bands like like John, Johnny Franks, and performing to these audiences and playing those kind of songs. When I was researching music, um, it's the most beautiful language in the world. I I met up with Johnny Franks's daughter, um, and she gave me um a typewritten manuscript of Johnny's autobiography which is called If You Don't Ask You Don't Get and it's, um, and I must read you a section from because it's obviously here in the West End Um, it's about a club called The Nuthouse and it's set in 1946 News had spread about a new club called The Nuthouse so I wanted to get my band in residence there The club was located in the basement of a dress shop at the bottom end of Regent Street Piccadilly. When I knocked on the door an eye opened behind the peephole Yes, the I said. I've come about my band, I said. Can I come in? After a series of bolts were unlocked, the door opened to reveal Al Burnett, the <laughs> club owner. Would you be interested in my seven-piece band? He took a minute to answer. All right, come for an audition. Come for an audition, Monday at 11. The following Monday, my band rehearsed at Max Rehearsal Rooms, doing three arrangements over a couple of hours. Then we hot it to the Nuthouse Club for 11. Once inside the club, we could see the Prohibition-style decor which Burnett had designed, quite obviously with customer anonymity in mind. The lighting was dim, just enough light for the bands to read their sheet music. The whole decor of the place was the 1930s gangster style with red check tablecloth, celebrity pictures on the wall, Jerry Lewis, Dean Martin, Danny Kaye, and cages behind the bar that held the client's personal bottles of booze. Burnett hired us to work from 9.30 until 3am every day for £14 a week and £20 for me because I was the band leader. I was delighted to accept it. After World War II, musicians were plentiful, (laughs) so I was glad to get some work. I had a good rhythm section, a tennis act, electric guitar and I pioneered the electric violin, a new sound with a Benny Goodman septet style combination of swing string voice arrangements. Those days at the Nut House are wonderful. I met some wonderful stars: Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Jack Hilton, Harry Roy, Carol Gibbons, and so many besides. Um, but the immense success of the club was ruined by the greed of the London mafia. Their local gangs demanded protection money from all the clubs and bars in the West End. Jack Spot was the lead of the West End, and he had 200 men at his, at his beck and call. One night, I was playing at the Nut House. Spot's rival gangster Albert Dimes from the Clerkenwell District came to the club with his entourage. They sat opposite the band to make themselves seen. (laughs) They wanted to let Burnett know that Dimes could protect the club for less money than Spot. Burnett panicked and telephoned Spot to tell him that Dimes' mob was in. Spot came down with his henchmen and sat at the front of the club. I was facing Dimes and knew a fight was about to kick off. I told Manny, our drummer, to get under the piano. (laughs) Spot's top man walked across to the front and stuck a burning cigarette in Dimes' face. The battle commenced. There was mayhem as furniture smashed and bottles went flying. The next day, there was a notice on the door. This establishment is closed. (laughs) So that was it. Oh man, terrific. (laughs) I dubbed myself down and found another job. Yeah, what a picture as well. It's a total, you know, like... it's fabulous because you've got it mm. all, you've got a sense mm. of the kind of clubs that existed mm. at that point. Mm. Obviously that whole background of gangsters, mm. Soho, obviously it's a, it, mm. it's it's part of Soho folklore. Um, and but it was real and it it, it was it, it was it was tough and rough and obviously for the musicians they were always had to be very careful because mm. you know anything could things could kick off. And they did. I mean, that's it. He's walked over and stubbed a cigarette on his face. (laughs) That's (laughs) going
0: to kick off. Alan, we're going to move on. So we got here. We got Sam. Let's have this this one. Sam Goldberg and Ellen Vinograd.
2: Okay. (laughs)
3: ist frei, für jeden gleich. Die Sonne für jeden Ohr Ohr Ach, ein, jeden, frei, ein lachen, am mit frei a Schnäpsel machen, a
2: die der Sonnenkämmen glücklich sein. Einer sich das Schirr einer sich das Tier die ganze Welt
3: she's singing in yiddish there right
1: she... this is yiddish and um, that's ellen Vinegrad and she's singing with uh, sam goldberg um the reason that um it was it's important to kind of hear stuff like that is that this is a typical Yiddish song, popular song written for Yiddish theater that was released and on record. But it was also part of a revival of Yiddish that was happening after the war. Um, What was happening is as through the process of Anglicization because um, young Jewish kids when they went to school, Jewish schools, they didn't speak Yiddish. They couldn't, you know, went to Jews free school in East London. Um, Yiddish was not spoken in the school, they were were told to speak English. Hmm. Um, Yiddish was considered an old language, it was a language from the old world. With the devastation of of the Yiddish-speaking community um, during the Second World War and the Holocaust, it meant that there was definitely already a kind of nostalgia, a realisation that you needed to keep the language alive. But there was a bit of a battle within the Jewish community. There was two. There was two. There was two tribes. There was those who said we move on. You know that was the past. We're now. We're we're about the here and now. But there was another saying that that this is this is our language. This is our cultural language. It is a language of a of the wandering Jew who's ended up in Eastern Europe and who's, who's fused a bit of German, a bit of Russia, and a bit of Slavic languages into this kind of this 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 this, this, this hotchpotch called Yiddish. Which was, which is a language that obviously has evolved to this day and is very much part of American and English mm. speak. You know, when we talk about slapping somewhere or and so forth, you know, um, it, it, We all know we, we all know what, what what we mean. You know what people mean. So it's 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 it, 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 it's become part of the lexicon. But certainly, um, um, this song and the next song by um, Baker and Willie and Willie, Willie Stephanie was a well-known Yiddish performer who actually opened the Yiddish Club in, the, in Soho in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and the whole idea of the Yiddish Club was to get young people into the club to speak Yiddish. Because it was this, this idea that if we didn't keep it going, it would disappear.
0: Right, so that's a way to save the language then, to actually have a specific venue... Exactly. For young people, play music, do stuff that they're going to enjoy doing and, and get them to
1: speak. Exactly. So if, you know, when we hear a little bit of Oida System, which is um, uh, Baker, Baker and Willie were a novelty act. Um, they were a Yiddish novelty act which was very popular, say, in America um, less so here certainly on record and this is one of the very rare surviving records of Baker and Willie very rare indeed but what you do here is this sense of, of, of kind of, of of pinpointing not only the fact that they're using Yiddish language but they're also They're also playing up the kind of fascination with gambling that the Jewish community had it was spieling
3: all of us enjoy the pleasure of a hobby in our leisure. Poker for the over 40s. Young folk may have other sporties. Many people like to ramble through a race course for a gamble. Finding winners is the puzzle. All you need is
2: lots of muzzles. Sister Nights will always have a try.
0: The motto is to win or lose. It's a bit like listening to Monty Python or something, right?
1: I mean, it's it's like a, 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 I mean, it's and it's quite complex, right? As well, it is, and it's you know put out on a small independent label mm. in a tiny studio, and you know lots of resourcefulness there, and um, yeah, totally, you know, it's it, it's um, it, it's got all the playfulness of. Of that kind of kind of comedy, you know, almost kind of goon-like, you know, in mm. that sense, and it's it's almost like radio comedy, um, but Jewish style, uh, Anglo-Jewish style, um, but it's an interesting snapshot of the kind of humour that was very popular at that time, and the fact that they were using Yiddish and also in jokes about the Jewish obsession with gambling, and playing cards till the late nights, you know, through the night. Going to horse racing, greyhound racing, and a lot of Jewish writers would be writing would, would would be would write novels. People like Alexander Baron and so forth wrote books about that kind of world. Um, um, so I think it's very important, and and then you know, and, and I, I think that you know, I, I think what's so interesting about that track, the fact that it was ever recorded at all, at all yeah. you know, how many people would have bought that record? Yeah. Hundreds, most yeah. probably. But that,
0: of course, these days, hundreds of people buying an actual vinyl record is quite respectable. <laughs> As I said, we've come full circle. <laughs> know, so, um, so, uh, so we're moving towards the end, Art, yeah, and we're yeah. moving through time, and I suppose yeah, we're going to yeah. finish off with this uh, this Yiddish Samba. But yeah. um, so the the record that you put out, is yeah. very much a kind of a window in time, a snapshot in time. Yes. And do you feel that, like, after that, there carried on being a kind of specifically uh, you know, Yiddish or Yiddish jazz, or uh, you know, or Jewish sound in London, or did it through the fact that, you know, the young kids are coming up to the West End, they're playing the dance bands, they're playing internationally, they're going out into the world, that, that it kind of actually then goes out into the world? Because, of course, there's many, many famous Jewish songwriting particularly duos, right? You know, I mean, thousands of them, and David, Sam, Funk. I mean, you know, there's lots of great Jewish songwriters as we talked about Lionel Barr. I mean, he's in the 60s, isn't he? But, but I mean, was this it? Was this the kind of, was, the, was this the, the window closing now, you know, in the sort of 50s? It was a particular moment in time that you've covered, and after that, it sort of went into the, well, became, went from the counterculture, effectively, mm-hmm. into the culture.
1: I think, I think that was always the aim, was to, in a way, change culture you know and i think that whether you're jewish if whether you're political cultural economic um um whatever your kind of whatever what wherever you're coming from your role you feel is to change things and i think that that's what that community did want to change it wants to have a role in impacting on music and culture in this country and i think you're right i think it just becomes part of a much wider thing um and you know obviously you know we can go on and on about all the different sort of jewish musicians of course and all the jewish writers but i think as well is what happens is the world that this music inhabits is is an era of what i would call still a ghetto Mm. It's the ghetto of the East End or the ghetto of Soho when people were living very close together, doing similar sort of jobs, going to the synagogue. And once that community disperses and particularly that movement into suburbia of the Jewish culture. So, for example, the Jewish schools in in, in Soho start to close in the 30s and 40s. The synagogue held on till the early 90s. Um, but certainly, and most of the cl- most of the clothing businesses went. Although there are still some around, there are a few um, food places still left. You know, there was obviously the, the you know kind of the Nosh bars, Phil Rabin's famous uh, salt beef bar. But of course, once the community moves away, the, the the kind of music that I'm talking about, the music that I'm intrigued about, which is a reflection of that world, the music. Isn't there anymore? Was that world isn't there kind of music? Anyway. And that's why this is a good track to
0: finish on because it's Yiddish and Samba. So it's you've got Yiddish music and Samba, which is a South American thing. Absolutely, right? so it's gone it's hopped right across the right the way across the Atlantic well, to South America.
1: Absolutely, you know, like you know, when when when, when uh, Max Bacon su- sung bagels, it was a rumba, um, back in the 1920s. Some one of, there was a very famous song called the Yiddish Yiddish Charleston. So Stanley Loudon put out the Yiddish Samba. And Stanley Loudon was a character in his own right. You know, Stanley was actually, unlike a lot of the EastEnders, he was from Krakow. And he had, um, he had fought with the Free Polish Army, ended up being injured at the Battle of Monte Cassino, found himself in Britain, and just played his way through life. You know, he basically performed in bands, and wrote songs, songwriter, publisher, manager, hustler. Um, and had put out an album of just Yiddish tracks in the 1950s, including this one, which is a classic. Um, and in a way it's it's uh, I, it's the sort of embracing it's no longer the jazz dance band. this is more as you' as we'll hear. This is very much...
0: swinging 60s. The <laughs>
1: Yiddish
2: Samba, the Yiddish Samba Has rhythm and has life like the Spanish Caramba The Yiddish Samba, the Yiddish Samba Is tasty like salad with cibillus and cucumber Sister, brother, mother and dad You shouldn't miss that chance Arein and arroyos, be happy and glad and dance that modern dance. The somber, the sing and Thanks very much, the
0: Alan, for walking us through oh, yeah, yeah, those those oh, beautiful tracks off the record.
1: Stephen, thank you very much. You know, it's, it's great. It's, it's really good speaking with you about this, and it, it, it's. I think you know, I'd really like to think that you know the listener will will enjoy the music in its own right. But obviously, you know, the kind of kind of pick up on the on on those sort of connections because Mm. uh, you know what I love about so many things is it's all part of a a bigger tapestry isn't it you know how we're all connected I think it's
0: also part of I mean you know what makes this city the way it is yeah for me you know London is this kind of you know it always was geographically a collection of villages wasn't it and it's then it was a collection of communities of different ethnic races and that's still going on in, in some ways, actually, isn't it? And that's why London is the way it is and that's why we love it, actually, isn't it? And so to, to dig a bit deeper into some of those stories and, some, in this case, some of the music, it yeah. sort of just brings it all to life more, especially at a time when we've all been locked down, interestingly, of course, because you can still walk the streets of East London, you can still see some traces, some ghosted little bits left of it out there. So, Alan, thank you so much for providing us with that wonderful musical map to Lost World. And thanks for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture.
1: Oh, it's a brilliant pleasure. Love it. Do come back. Thanks. Thanks a lot.
0: Absolutely wonderful stuff I'm going to put links to the album Music is the most beautiful language in the world Yiddish jazz in London's East End 1920s to 1950s Released by JMW Records Plus the recent 7-inch single If there's any of those left Uh, And also links to Alan's other work His wonderful radio show Don't log off And he's also an author of several Social oral history books as well I hope you've enjoyed that As much as I did and I hope that you come back for more stories from the counterculture, stories of lost culture, rare audio from the other side. You can now check out this show as well as Soho Radio on all the major podcast providers. If you listen to it via Apple, we'd love you to leave a review. See you, here next time. I'm Stephen Coates.